is a box, a musical box, wound up and ready to play. Can you guess what is in it today? I'm at a cemetery in the heart of the little Essex riverside town of Wivenhoe. It's a midsummer morning and there's a bright and beautiful feeling. As I entered the gate into this quiet refuge, I heard the song of a chaffinch before I saw it feeding on the longish grass in front of a cracked and tilted Victorian headstone. Its patterned plumage was helping it to blend in, but I soon disturbed its efforts and it flew away, high up over me, a flash of white on its wings and tail. Opened in the 1850s when the churchyard of St Mary the Virgin, further down by the riverfront, was full, this cemetery is in two parts, on either side of Bellevue Road. I'm at the entrance to the old cemetery, on the north side, which is no longer used for burials and is maintained as a nature reserve. This means the grass is not cut during the summer, which can make graves a little difficult to locate. Across the road is the Southern New Cemetery, still in use, where I can see two workers quietly preparing a new grave for a burial this afternoon. The grave I'm looking for lies about halfway down the left-hand side, close to the highest cemetery wall, which stretches all around the several thousand graves. Built with soft red London bricks, this wall is showing its age, covered in ivy and in need of a bit of care. Although it wasn't laid out on such an ambitious scale, after all, Wivenhoe was a small boat-building and fishing village here on the River Colne in Victoria times. This old cemetery contains a variety of fine monuments with some fascinating symbolism. But I'm heading for the grave of a man who was one of the last to be interred here before the more minimalist and functional new cemetery was opened across the road. And his burial spot is marked with something far less grand though important nonetheless. Here it is. I've found it. The greens and yellows of ivy have started to walk their way over the front of this headstone, and it takes me a few minutes to pull away these trailing nuisances and pull back the long grass growing at the bottom. I take a deep breath. The sun seems to be brighter here than anywhere else in the cemetery, and I squint as I read. Ernest Mallory, 1898 to 1959. He always had poetry in his adequate life. And at the bottom it says, never knowingly appreciated, but one day he will be loved. He is now resting with his genius. Some are called genius right from the start. Some grow into national treasure as they grow into their fame, their renown, and the kindly judged approval of their followers. And some are elevated upon their deaths into their preeminence when we realize just what we have lost. But a few, a very few, remain unrecognized, their true genius hidden, and with the passing of time, their light stubbornly refuses to shine as brightly as it should. But now, I've found the light switch, and I'm ready to put some money into the meter. Let us turn this light on. Let us shine it through the prism of Box 39. It's time to reveal, for good 
and for bad, with truth and honesty, this remarkable story, one that has remained ball-achingly untold for the last 75 years, the story of Ernest Mallory, Wivenhoe's lost genius. This is Box 39, and I'm Bill Lawrence, and today I'm telling the story of Ernest Mallory, the man whose unremarkable life hid a remarkable gift for poetry, and who is now recognised in local, national, and even international circles as Wivenhoe's lost genius. Few have been fully pleasured by the poetry of Ernest Mallory. Even today, there are some who have yet to discover his genius, though he has become well-known amongst millennials, of course, as his work is now included in GCSE poetry anthologies, alongside other favourites such as T.S. Eliot, W.H. Auden, Mr. Kipling, and of course the Three Johns, Keats, Betjeman, and Cooper Clark. Perhaps best known is the poem that he himself regarded as his favourite, his tribute to his neighbour, his friend, and his occasional tobacconist from Wivenhoe in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. Written in 1923, this is Keith Hoskins by Ernest Mallory. I will confess I love him, but I don't yearn for his touch. The wanting is more for his manly ideas and for intimacy not so much. Men together is a mystery for the lumpen masses looking on who think such virile entanglement means secret silk and gay chiffon. Let the gossipers chatter like nattering tittle-tattlers, because Keith Hoskins and I are none to it, like nonchalant battlers. Armed with pipes and leaf, we stroll along the river cone, and fly up and away, far, far away from our newish, semi-detached homes. Keith Hoskins and I are each other's sanctuary in a world full of haughty ladies. We offer each other our positions on Zeus, Persephone, and Hades. Keith recites rote-learned elevens of great men who graced Castle Park, while I talk of how breeds of dog can be told apart by their each and every bark. Gone are the train sets, tin soldiers, and plastic swords. Now our cud to chew is weightier fare, like tobacco, beer, and treading the boards. Yes, I will confess, I love Hoskins, I really do. And he refers to me as Mallory, for reasons you can construe. Though kisses and cuddles are blissful things that he and I must forego. There's nothing quite like the bond of men and the symbiosis it does bestow.
thank you to Adrian Cohen, who reads Mallory's poems throughout this show. And also thanks to the Elmstead Market Chamber Orchestra, who have provided the background music for all pieces that we were unable to get cleared with our recorded music license. It does seem somewhat surprising today, that just 65 years ago, the linen basket of our popular culture was devoid of the worn socks and grey stained underwear of Ernest Mallory's poetry, for it seems today that we have worn his wonderful words forever. But when Mallory died in 1959, aged just 61, he was unremarkable, unrecognised and unpublished. There are so few occasions when Mallory read his own poems publicly. One notable time was at an open poetry night of the Wivenhoe Poetry Society in 1937. This was a well-supported fixture in Wivenhoe's cultural calendar and took place in the spacious and busy British Legion building on the quayside at Wivenhoe. The show was opened and closed by the Brylingsea Dixieland Quintet, and it is recorded that all monies raised that evening were donated to the campaign to free Abyssinia from Italian fascist aggression. Local arts correspondent of the Colchester and Frinton Standard, Betty Williams Smithers, wrote a review of the evening and of Mallory's contribution. Colne Radio has produced this reenactment of William Smithers as if speaking after the event, based closely on her article in the Standard and performed here by Wivenhoe voice artist and 21st century Mallory enthusiast, Venetia Tardy Bint. Despite his scintillating poetry, Mallory cuts an unassuming figure. Not exactly dapper, not extrovert, with his thin, nasally voice and stiff manner his eyes looking down, fixed to his quivering piece of paper, a demeanour that only serves to ensure that all attention falls entirely upon his carefully crafted words. You could walk past this chap in the street, looking into an art shop window a hundred times, and you would not wish to start a conversation with him. And yet, in that mind of his, swirling around, were these gorgeous verses. Take Abyssinia is blue, for example. With such delicious economy of expression, the poem really does reflect the complexity of international relations in the present day. With the dreadful impotence of the League of Nations, the inertia of insipid democracies smothered by their bromide bureaucracies, and, indeed, the state of the world as we see it in 1936... The poem exhibits an astounding grasp of the geography of the empire through a series of uncanny insights. How he was able to differentiate between the European colonies in Africa so deftly, so intuitively, recognising each of the unique territories for what they are and for their inimitable worth to us, and the sense that there is gratitude among their populations, which is as it should be. This belies the petulant leftist view, which would have us believe that people like Mallory, and many other residents of Withenhoe too, are simply jingoistic, reactionary and ignorant. 
One of the ladies at the end spoke to me. I don't think she is a leftist, but I believe her husband is. He teaches at a university, but I found what she said fascinating nonetheless. She swore Abyssinia is blue as a jolly clever parody of nationalism and hypocrisy. I must admit that this reading of it is lost on me. But such a theory can only add to the sheer depth of this poem, which I prefer to see as being evidence that the poet has his fingers on the pulse of our nation. Mallory seemed relieved to have survived the ordeal of reading his work in public and left the event shortly thereafter. And besides, it would be quite childish for a journalist like me to ask the poet to demystify his own poem for us in public. Such a thing would probably have been the undoing of T.S. Eliot, whose name should quite rightly be mentioned alongside that of Ernest Mallory. Egypt is red, so we have Cairo and Alexandria too. But the Italian blighters are in Africa, and so Abyssinia is blue. Sudan is red on the map, so Khartoum is in our paternal hands. But Abyssinia is blue because the Italians invaded those lands. Uganda and Kenya both kneel to rule Britannia's crown, while the nearby Abyssinia is blue, as are all of its towns. King George surveys red Somaliland and red Tanganyika too, but he looks upon Abyssinia and he sees churlish Italian blue. Rhodesia and Nigeria bow to London's virtuous plans, but the blue of Abyssinia means that Italians plunder those lands. Gambia and Gold Coast red on the map, one and all, but the blue of Abyssinia sticks in this Englishman's craw. What was Downing Street thinking? Who dropped the ball? As Italians daub patronizing blue on noble Africa's horn. Red across the continent means good governance and jolly sports, but the blue of Abyssinia means that cocksure Italy cavorts. If there should be another great war one day, let Britain invade Abyssinia and make it red without delay. I'm sitting at a table outside the Rose and Crown, a popular riverside pub here in Wivenhoe. There's a happy mixture here today of holiday makers, families up from Colchester, and over there I can see a well-known local high-functioning alcoholic GP doctor, all enjoying the gentle breeze blowing across the river from Rohedge as the sunshine dances on the water. It's a peaceful place.
Yeah, back in 1940. This was a very different pub, and not just because it was then called the Fat Butcher. It was because Wivenhoe stood at the very threshold of the expected Nazi invasion coming across the North Sea from the nearby Netherlands and up the gently sloping beaches of northeast Essex. And it was in this pub garden that Ernest Mallory appeared on a 1940 wartime edition of the popular BBC home service programme Down Your Way, reciting his poetry. Though sadly the recording is lost and all that remains are scribbled producer's notes. This program featured one of Britain's most popular comedians of the time, Charlie, let's be having you Mrs. Calloway, and was part variety, part travelogue and part propaganda vehicle for a country being shredded by the aches and strains of total war effort. Ernest Mallory, at 42 years of age and with a chronic asthma and wind condition, was deemed medically unfit for any active service and his wartime poetry reflected his battles with his inner angst and with the outer disapproval from fellow residents. According to the BBC producer's notes, Calloway entertained the large crowd gathered between the pub and the river with a few minutes of his cheerful comedy capers and some nationalist sing-along favourites. And then he spoke briefly to a local fisherman who had returned from a night's fishing off the coast at Clacton catching mudlark eels, which were of course such an important part of poverty-stricken Londoners' wartime diets. And then Calloway turned to Mallory, who recited his poem that remembered the 1916 Battle of the Somme called War. What a bastard! Bent over, like old paupers under really big bags. Weak, need, coughing a lot, we swore through terrible mud. Till from the coloured flares, we redirected our legs and towards our distant accommodation, we began to trudge. Men marched sleepily, many had scuffed their boots, but limped on like blood sausages, all limping, all blind, tipsy with tiredness, deaf even to the demented choirs of angels, of bombs containing gas going boomph softly behind. Chemical weapons, chemical weapons, hurry boys! Understandable fumbling, fitting the clumsy headgear with barely enough time, but someone still was making a fuss and stumbling and floundering like a man who'd swallowed a lime, dim through the piss-coloured mist and toadish thick light, as if under a green river we thought he looked like he was drowning. In all the dreams made vivid by cheese I've had on many a night, he waves at me, cursing about his skin browning. If in some unpleasant hypothetical you too could pace behind the cart that was necessarily carrying him and see the stress in his eyes staring out from his face, his worried face, because of the devilish bind he was in, if you could hear at every bump him going oof, coming very quietly from his damaged lungs, a very bad scene and as bitter as glue of awful painful spots on his puffed-up tongue, my friend, 
You would not speak with a puffed-up chest to tell military stories for which children are hungry, the old truth said in Latin. It is not sweet and fitting to die for one's country. A spokesperson for Price University has defended Mallory from accusations of plagiarism over this poem. They point out that no one ever read it during his lifetime, and so he never actually claimed that the poem was entirely his own work. But now, as Wilfred Owen's copyright has expired, the issue of plagiarism is moot. Decide for yourself. Every Tuesday at 8 p.m., repeated on Sundays at 10 p.m., there is Bill's Big Bag of Onions, a lovely compilation of lovely short stories written by some lovely friends of Cone Radio, and lovely music, introduced by the lovely Bill Lawrence, which all makes it a thoroughly lovely radio show. listening to Box 39 with Bill Lawrence, Adrian Cohen and Yvonne Peeney. And this week we are investigating Ernest Mallory, distinguished poet and Wivenhoe's lost genius. Ernest Audacious Mallory was born, lived and died in Wivenhoe. Both of his parents, like generations of Mallory's before them, were lifelong workers in the thriving local fishing industry. His father, George, was an assistant warehouseman at one of the larger fish-gutting sheds, whilst his mother, Sevilla, originally from southern Spain, was in demand as a bilingual sail rigger at the famous Nottage Boat Building Yard that nestled on the Colne to the east of Wivenhoe. As a young child, Ernest would sit on the quayside repairing fishing nets to earn extra pocket money. These experiences can be felt 
throughout his poetry. And, for example, here is Mallory's poem written in 1930 upon the death of his mother called I Wish I Could See the Sea and Smell My Mother Again. I am Dada, and from this day I shall be Dadaism personified. Some will find it puzzling, while others will find it wild. I will use shock, paradox, negativity, and nihilism too, and I will use randomness, subconscious, and antinomianism on you. My readers of me, you ask, puzzled, you will ask me why, and I shall answer to subvert established traditions, and not before time. Then my readers ask, Ernest, did you happen to read a book? And I shall say, be that as it may, I am Dada now, regardless of what it took. I wish I could see the unseen sea, and smell my odorless mother once again. I will seek her in Brightling Sea, and fly with her over rural custard lanes. Then on Colchester High Street I shall dip dopey shoppers in my egg, and throw their yolk-stained bones to snooty publishers urinating on my leg. I shall fold up earth-bound Stanway, and fashion it into a plane, and land it in Abyssinia, and for England make the claim. I shall tempt the rats of Ipswich with cheese upon a trap, and play a flute of celery, slapping rats into a fratricidal scrap. With all the rats gone, the Ipswich folk will acclaim me their king, and I will say, no, I'm Dada now. I do not wish such a thing. Someone said that Dada is the most destructive art to come from the brain of man, but who cares if there are poopers, if Faber and Faber think my poems scan? We find other telling references to Mallory's youth in the prolific poetry he wrote about the Great War. He was just 16 when it started, and due to his mother's Spanish nationality, Ernest was excused military service in the trenches of Flanders. Instead, as the many troop-carrying ships set sail from Wivenhoe with soldiers brought by train from the nearby Colchester garrison, Mallory sat alone on the quayside with his poetry and an invitation from the War Office to start an accountancy apprenticeship at the engineering company Paxman's in Colchester, which had just been granted a substantial government contract to build the first tanks which would do battle with the Germans on the Ypres salient in the summer of 1915. Written in 1950, this is one of the nation's favourites, On Being an Accountant, by Ernest Mallory. Everything in order, everything just so, the nib drawing shapes of numerical import. The tallies and subtractions, the totals, they grow, and perfection is normal in a normal report. 
Is it a passion? Is it a calling? Is it a vocation? And is it boring? The answers are yes, again yes, another yes, and a no. Well-crafted numbers make impossible all snoring. Pen, nib, lines, paper and ink. Not much to that, you might jaundicedly think. Red, green, faint, grey and white. Columns and rows shall be filled before night. As the cruel winds of war blew themselves out by the end of 1918, Mallory had realised that there were two ambitions that he wished to fulfil. The first was to write his poetry, something which he did very privately at this point. The second was to develop his skills and knowledge of accountancy. And therefore it was no surprise to his parents that Ernest secured a job at the Colchester-based accountancy firm Boswell's, a company that he would remain associated with until the end of his working life. Boswell specialised in arable seed and fertiliser, accountancy and tax procedures. One of his colleagues at Boswell's was Irene Tubbs, a young and lively fellow Wivenhoe resident who would commute to work with Boswell every day on the train. He would spend the day in the back office at Boswell's filling ledgers, assuring tax deductions were appropriate and offsetting profit against loss. Whilst Irene would spend her day pushing her highly polished tea urns and secretly falling in love with Mallory, a man who was becoming increasingly overcome with undiagnosed poetic genius, leaving him no time for romance. Irene kept a diary where she detailed her most personal thoughts. These thoughts remained secret for many years. And one day she moved to Australia with her new husband, an itinerant sheep shearer who was passing through Wivenhoe. Many years later, when Mallory's genius was recognised and he had achieved posthumous fame, Irene's children published her diaries kept during her years working with Mallory. And here are some extracts, voice for Cone Radio, by voice artist Kath Kershaw. Monday, 23rd of June, 1920. Dear Diary, what an exciting day this has been. Boswell's is a dream come true. It takes a northern woman to make a proper cup of tea, and there's not a company in the world that can run properly without a supply of proper tea. All these years living like a fish out of water in Wivenhoe, walking past Boswell's on my way to school, who'd have thought I'd end up working there? And now, dream number two, I need to find a decent man and settle down. <laughs> Steady on, Irene, one dream at a time. Be thankful for today. Good night, diary. Wednesday, 15th of March, 1922. Dear diary, I've been watching Ernest work today. He's such a noble man. I hear he is a poet. Well, I heard it from him. He told me so. I gave him his tea and I asked what the book was he was reading. I could see it sticking out of his duffel bag. 
He told me it was the poems of Wilfred Owen. How lovely, I said. What a decent man. The war was so bad. I asked him, oh, so you like reading poetry? Silly question, I know. But my heart was in my mouth. I am a poet too, he said. I love this. I've been watching him every day at work. And here he is opening up to me and telling me about his inner life. I shall open up to him soon about my dream for him and me. Sunday the 5th of July 1924. Dear Diary, Ernest and I went on our first date today and I'm over the moon. He's such a gentleman. We walked along the River Colne and talked and talked. I was in heaven. We sat on a bench and looked at paper bags bobbing on the water flowing by. He took out a sandwich he had made and he gave me half of it. It was so romantic. I asked him if he'd ever written a poem about me. He said no. So that will be the next sign. He didn't kiss me either, but that's okay. That will be another sign. I am ready. Friday the 20th of December 1926. Dear Diary, Ernest and I finally kissed and did other physical things that might well have been seen as a precursor to sexual congress. It was not what I expected. Not at all. Ernest was very apologetic. Good night, diary. When Irene unexpectedly left Boswell's and Wivenhoe, this left an indelible brown stain on Mallory's life. It was shortly after, in 1932, that he wrote what was to become one of the most famous and seminal poems, Goodbye, Irene, a sensitive study that portrays a man in a state of emotional and accountancy limbo in a world where the distant drumbeat of fascism echoed around the gentle and happy streets and houses of Old Wivenhoe. Walks by the cone and along the beach that's beside the sea, Irene gave me a hunger to be the poet that I could be. Not at our best, it's true, as groping, foreplaying bedfellows, but Irene was my muse, the model for my poetic Picassos, her plump calves like a piglet trussed up overnight. Thighs overly long like a badger taking flight. Her stare was always piercing me and sucking out my eyes, lips moist and shiny like a tomato double sliced. Feet too big and slightly splayed like a baby giraffe grown too large. Knees and elbows and shoulders jutting like an ostrich on the charge. Buns like two pillows, and a back like a Picasso ironing board. Her breasts were like a Salvador Dali scene, impossible to ignore. And yet Ernest he loved her, and it made him like a third person talking. For he rarely got a word in edgewise, though in his braver mind he wasn't balking. Waxing on Italian fascists, looming war, and the audacity of Wivenhoe youth, Irene was a girding inspiration with polemics forged with nail and tooth. So 
Irene has vanished, perhaps to seek a more tumescent fumbling, but she will always live in my heart, and the poems will continue to come out tumbling. Welcome to the world of global digital retail, a world of possibilities into which one is born every minute. Welcome to the world of Lord David Price. Whether it be underprivileged Nigerians working in call centers in Lagos, or Polish food cosmeticians turning plain fish into Scottish salmon in Warsaw, or Price University's research bolstering China's claim to the South China Sea, behind it all is global digital retail. Listening to Box 39 with Bill Lawrence, Adrian Cohen, and Yvonne Peeney. And this week we are investigating Ernest Mallory, distinguished poet and Wivenhoe's lost genius. I'm standing in watery summer sunshine by the River Colne Tidal Barrier, a remarkably neat and pleasingly unobtrusive construction erected in the early 1990s on the downstream side of Wivenhoe. Built to protect the communities of both Wivenhoe to the north and Rohedge to the south of the River Colne from flooding by high tides, there are two gate piers on either side of the navigation channel which can be closed by a pair of mitre gates similar to those used in locks on rivers and canals in places as far afield as Bishop Stortford and even Bedford. Just behind me here on the Wivenhoe side is the smart control building 
where the harbour master sits and the various hydraulic mechanisms and valves can be activated. And just behind that is the clubhouse of Wivenhoe Sailing Club, looking out across the river towards the distant St Andrew's Church Tower in Fingringhoe. At the top of the long white wooden flagpole that is used as a marker for so many races at the Wivenhoe Regatta each June, a flag is furled and drooping rather despondently on this windless day. Looking east away from the town, I can see low-lying fields with sheep grazing and the raised single railway track that takes commuters and holidaymakers alike to nearby Alsford and then to the coast, if lucky to pass through Clacton, reaching Beach Hut Happiness at Walton. And dog walkers are enticing their owners along the small cindered path that follows the river on its five-mile journey to Brightlingsea matching the course of the long-abandoned railway spur deemed no longer worthwhile over 60 years ago. More chaffinches fly up from the meadow, rising above the clumps of shepherd's purse and its white notched leaves and the distinctively yellow dandelions. By July, they will be joined by seas of buttercups, cow parsley and white nettles, all buzzing with beetles, bees and butterflies. 124,500 poems written by Mallory have been found so far and no one knows whether more will be uncovered. It's thought that he may have written eight to nine poems a day over a 40-year period. This spot in Wivenhoe is where Ernest Mallory would come to find inspiration, seek solace, and as the uncrumbling monotony of his middle-aged life lay over him like an overfed amateur wrestler, he would walk his small dog Davy, reciting his poetry out loud and unsolicited to passing Wivenhoe residents. It's a spot that's recognisable in this poem, considered by many to be his most controversial poem. Written in 1948 by Mallory, this is Wivenhoe. It's not all art shops and homemade jam. Wivenhoe is more than just art shops and jams. It's a thousand years of cockles, mussels and clams, soil tilled by yeomen, Crops scythed by youth, rejecting bad manners, rejecting the uncouth. Wivenhoe is more than just gardens and lawns. Its fields stretch greenly, its trees delay dawns. Its church bells peal keenly, its cattle give milk. There are no squaddies here and chaps of that ilk. Wivenhoe is more than just brick, wood and thatches. There are flower beds and ponds and vegetable patches. Its folk are honest and they toil for their coins. Customs are passed down via seeds from local loins. Go to Colchester if you want to run and to race for soulless urban living and frowns on every face. You'll soon long for the small town that passes every exam, for Wivenhoe is more than just art shops and jam.
1958 and age 60, and after a 40-year career in accountancy, Ernest Mallory had reached a significant turning point in his life. His poetry remained unpublished. Investments in gas-powered lawnmowers and other gardening paraphernalia had failed. A faded photo of the time shows him standing outside the entrance to the public bar of the Fat Butcher, unsmiling and staring intently at the camera, his unfamiliar long fringe spilling down his face and a curvaceous beard tumbling over the lapels of his buttoned-up duffel coat. He had finally resigned from his job at Boswell's The Accountants that spring and had holidayed alone in a two-man canvas tent that he had erected in his front garden. He would never move back indoors. Ursula Bryson is now 80 years old and a resident at one of the most prestigious and expensive care homes within easy walking distance of the alcohol retail section of the Wivenhoe Co-op. But in 1958, she was a teenage non-binary fish-gutting trainee, living with her parents next door to Mallory. I met Ursula in her care home in between complimentary bingo games and beetle drives, and she remembered back to 1958, when she would watch and occasionally talk to Mallory over their shared front garden fence. She believes that she knew what was going on in his mind as much, and perhaps, if not more, than anyone else in those last few months of Ernest Mallory's life. Mallory, if that's his name, mostly kept himself to himself. He was a funny bloke. You say he's going to be famous now? Well, I don't know anything about that. He was strange-looking. Funny hair and a terrible beard. Don't know what he was thinking. Nowadays, my parents wouldn't have let me talk to him. It's not like I talked to him much. What was there to talk about? I was just 16 and he was old. You tell me he was this great poet? Don't know about that. I was a young trainee. My head was full of fish gutting. Different knives and different fish. Feeding people. Ordering the ice. I had no head for poetry. Not then and not now. That was Wivenho for you. You had your oity-toities and their little shops selling sod all and giving each other prizes for their marrows and homemade jams. And then there was us lot, hacking off pigs, trotters, digging ditches and gutting fish. I didn't realise I was living right next door to a hoity-toity. To look at him, you wouldn't know. But, unlike your properly gutted fish, you can't feed people on poems. Who were they for? Why didn't he have a better house? I remember when he pitched that tent on his front lawn. If it had been today, we'd have called the police. But back then, in those days, people kept to themselves, minded their own business. I talked to him over the fence a few times. His back garden was full of broken lawnmowers. Can't remember what we would have talked about. Maybe I'd been given new knives or I'd found something peculiar that a fish had swallowed in its gut when I slit it open. Anyway... I was standing there by the fence looking at his beard and I said, What's with the tent, mister? And he said something about how people didn't have to go all the way to West Mercy for a camping holiday. And that was that. He was in that tent for over a year. These hoity-toity people with holidays that last a year. <laughs> Some of us were feeding people and you had your two weeks off and that was that. 
Well, I remember one day a hearse came and took him away and someone from the council took his tent down. Hello, I'm Lord David Price, a member of the British elite aristocracy. People like me have dominated the course of commerce, power and privilege for countless generations. That's the pedigree you can trust. And that recording you've just heard of Ursula Bryson in her care home is just one of the many now available in my new online subscription channel, Lord David Price's Oldies Archive a digital library of elderly people's memories, available now from Global Digital Retail, the leading online organisation that can monetize your relatives' reminiscences and recollections before they disappear altogether. This is your chance to forever keep the sound of sanity before insanity prevails, and at the same time offset some of those care home costs. By using a scale of sliding fees that even simple working folk can understand, our representatives will help you find a market for what your relatives have recorded. A local school project perhaps, or even if you are just selling copies to the wider members of your family. All recording is undertaken by our trained interviewers who are happy to pose as lost or forgotten members of your family to encourage the release of those treasured memories for history and your bank balance to enjoy forever. Lord David Price's Oldies Archive is a wholly owned subsidiary of Global Digital Retail based in the Cayman Islands, subject to all laws of there and not here. All recordings are fully owned in perpetuity by Global Digital Retail and terms and conditions and fees to access them are subject to change without notice. No rights to alter these arrangements shall exist, though a waiver fee can be paid for the return of your rights to recordings held by Lord David Price's Oldies Archive at five yearly intervals, unless the contributor has died, in which case all deals are off. Global Digital Retail will maintain a full and careful scrutiny of any attempts for recordings from the Oldies Archive to be copied, reproduced or heard in public, including theatres, cinemas, oil rigs or family gatherings of over five adults, and will maintain a robust record of prosecution if terms and conditions legally binding under Cayman Island law have been broken. Our lawyers are always watching. It was on the 14th of May 1959 that Withenhoe residents were shocked at the news that postman Curly Hampton had tried to deliver a letter to Mallory's tent that was special delivery and required a signature. The letter contained a contract and a cheque from London publishers Bloomsbury Press begging to be the sole publishers of all of Ernest Mallory's poems. But all the postman found in the tent that day was ash, smoke, some unidentifiable greasy stains and bits of charred duffel coat. Mallory's entire body had been incinerated, leaving only his tie and a portion of each leg below the knee. The feet and legs were still clothed in socks and brown corduroy trousers. 
The Colchester coroner was later to confirm Mallory's death as spontaneous human combustion for which there is no adequate explanation. Unblemished and freshly written next to this bizarre scene was Ernest Mallory's final poem. Is this it then? My life is not going to give me as much time as I'd hoped for. But should I now be glum that there's not that much more? Van Gogh too was a talent whose time ended early, but did Vincent dwell on his unsold paintings and feel surly? I like to think not. I picture him trundling on one-eared, but blissfully content. Maybe reading a book on Van Gogh would be some latter days well spent. The passage of time now is a fleeting thief that must be arrested, so that every moment of mine be slow, savoured, and blessed. Should I now labour over poems imperfectly hewn, or should I give birth to more poems that are ignored, but brand new? Irene Tubbs both sweetly and sour, insisted that I should never give in, though the double standard of her leaving did strike upon my chin. Gone now must be the things that mark out the time. In must come the retarding things like stopped clocks with no chime. Is this it then? A beloved voice once asked. It was Keith Hoskins' bleak tone, as he neared his last. I liked the man dearly. His demise caused me chagrin, because I will go differently by asking, what's this then? I'm Bill Lawrence, and this has been Box 39 and the story of Ernest Mallory, the lost genius of Wivenhoe. Be seeing you. Have you finished recording all the Mallory stuff now? Yeah, it's all done, all finished. 
Thank goodness. Our train goes in 25 minutes. We've just got about time for a quick pint. Yeah, come on, let's go. Do you know, I need a pint after all that gloomy poetry. I mean, how on earth did he become popular? It's like listening to lumps of wet lard dripping down a wall of hopelessness. Might as well have been written by a syndicate of encyclopedias for an audience of international business machines. Give me John Cooper Clark any day. Or that bloke from the pub, Martin Newell. He is a genius. Yes, he is, apparently. Mallory's work is barely adequate. Unlike Big Dave's burgers, of course. Let's get one of Dave's adequate burgers when we get back to Stanway. Yeah, great idea. I'm starving after all this recording work. I think I'll have Big Dave's cheeseburger with his uh, homemade chilli sauce. That chilli sauce? Unbelievable. The best in the whole of Stanway. Have you tried Kebabs or Us in Lexton yet? No, but I've seen it's got great reviews on TripAdvisor. Yes, time to go. Let's leave Ernest Mallory where he belongs. In the past. Fox 39 is a guppy production for Cohen Radio and is committed to a varied, equitable and truly inclusive output that properly reflects the ethnic diversity of our community audience. You may think he's down, you may think he's out, but no, he's getting back up again. The 45-year veteran of broadcasting, Bill Lawrence, he is to be the voice of South Suffolk Internet Shopping with Global Retail. Be sure to bookmark the webpage. Hello, Lord David Price here. Do you want to work as a lawyer for Global Digital Retail? One of the most successful, ambitious and tax-efficient employers that you could think of? We are now recruiting motivated, flexible and forward-thinking hopefuls to join our online team of legal representatives to ensure our continued growth in the digital subscription market. Working from home, you will be given the full support of the Lord David Price Guarantee, a copper-bottomed, gilt-edged, and gold-lined guarantee that includes all the training you will ever need to work in this highly accountable, controversial and litigious environment for just a one-off fee paid to me at the start of your time with us. And if you ever find yourself in a difficult legal situation, you can rest assured that I will be at the end of your email here at my Cayman Island headquarters with my guarantee again to respond ready and able in 24 hours or even less. So join me now in your new career as one of my legal team here at Global Digital Retail, where corporate privilege is our right and tax-deductible opportunity is our responsibility. All employment opportunities at Global Digital Retail are subject to the terms and conditions outlined on our website. All contracts are renewable only upon achieving set financial targets. Financial targets are subject to change without notice. All holiday arrangements, pension and local employment rights and provisions are those held under Cayman Island law despite the location in which you may be working or receiving payment from us. All qualifications needed during the course of your work can be purchased with an easy one-off fee at any time so that you can be sure that you will always be working in a conscious free environment.